Episode 2, Warren's Dream and Shootout at Baradale's Camp. Water soaking through the bottom of my right shoe brought me back from the world of Kephart's book. As I re-engaged with my surroundings, the bookseller spoke. Creeks come out of its banks, he said, flooding the town. I looked down, rainwater surged across the road, overwhelming the gutter and seeping under the bookshop door. My shoes were damp from the inch of water that now covered a good bit of the shop floor. The bookseller was shoving towels under the door jamb, but they only stemmed the tide a little. Suddenly I realized what the low shop ceiling and floodwater could mean and my breath caught in my throat. We need to get out of here, I said, my voice more panicked than I cared to admit. Not out, the bookseller murmured. We cannot go out. He nodded at the deluge of flood water outside the shop window. It was getting deeper by the second. There was no way we would survive if we went out into the street. The street lamps were flickering and parked vehicles were beginning to float, smashing into each other in the floodwaters like some sort of a deranged carnival ride. And then... That sound, the howl. I wasn't even sure if it was real or if I was hearing things, but no matter, it stood my hair on end. And then I swear, when the lightning flashed, I saw it. For just a moment, there it was, standing in the middle of the flooded road. Its black hair rippling and standing on end, its lips curled back and up in a snarl, revealing red stained teeth. Water foamed and crashed around its sinewy legs, but it never moved. It just stood there, somehow stronger than the flood, and stared through the window right at me. This is Moonshine Land, a story of haunted Appalachia. Based on Horace Kephart's true account of moonshine, murder, and mountain mayhem, our Southern Highlanders, and Madeline Vinton Dahlgren's classic description of the Appalachian occult, South Mountain Magic, Moonshine Land is the story of my attempt to discover the truth behind a Prohibition-era manhunt for a fugitive moonshiner. But instead of uncovering the story of a human criminal, I found evidence of an ancient Appalachian evil that has been hiding in the hills for centuries. And this ancient evil was not happy to have been disturbed. Listen on if you dare. And then in an instant, that thing, it was gone, replaced by a black Honda Civic that careened past, bashed about by the floodwaters. That car was obviously what I had seen, not some supernatural monster. The panic was getting to me and my eyes were playing tricks, that's all. I pulled out my cell phone thinking to call the fire department to see if they could come and get us before things really got out of hand, but I had no service. No signal down here, the bookseller said. No signal today, I asked. No signal ever, he answered. There had better be another way out of here, I said to the bookseller. There's no way I'm going to drown here in some old bookstore with some guy who, no offense, I don't even know. This is not how I'm going to go out. The bookseller nodded and pointed at the ceiling. Fair enough. Not my first flood. If it gets real bad, we'll go up. The bookseller walked across the shop and opened a door at the back. This goes to the first floor, he said. From there, you get to the second, and if the storm turns biblical, there's a way to the roof from there. I looked around at the water seeping in and the shelves full of antique literature. What about your books? I asked. He shook his head and smiled that strange, eternal smile of his. Everything has an end, he said quietly. 
Outside, it looked like the rain was slowing a bit and the water wasn't coming under the door as fast. The bookseller looked out the window, face turned up toward the storm clouds. I wondered aloud if the storm was calming down any. The bookseller nodded slightly. Looked like it's slowing down a bit. He took a push broom from behind the counter and he wrapped the brush end with a towel and started nudging water toward a drain in the corner. Watching the bookseller do physical labor reminded me how elderly the man appeared to be. Need some help, I asked, more than a little concerned for his health. He smiled. Don't generally put my customers to work. You go ahead, keep reading. You do your job and I'll do mine. That's only fair. Still feeling unnerved, but also compelled to keep going with the book, I sat down on the couch and opened Kephart's manuscript back to where I left off. I looked over my shoulder at the bookseller who was still working his push room, fighting against the trickle of flood water. If he noticed I was watching him, he didn't show it. He just ignored me and kept working. I looked back down at the book. Well, nothing better to do while I wait out the flood, I tried to convince myself. But I knew that wasn't all there was to it. Something was driving me, compelling me to keep reading. And that feeling of compulsion was just as frightening as the eerie howls I kept hearing and the strange things I kept seeing. I took a breath and turned the page. Chapter 3, Warren's Dream. The snake stick man made his way ahead of us, sturdy in his gait despite his use of the sinister walking stick. Ketch and I stomped through the brush behind him and tried to make sense of what he had just said. The hell is he talking about, Kephart? Ketch asked me, his tone hushed. You mean the black dog of South Mountain, I offered? Ketch rolled his eyes and rolled another cigarette. What the hell else would I be talking about, Horace? I mean, I know something killed our horses, but a wolfman? Is this Marshall insane? I thought for a moment about what Ketch had just asked me. You see, I had done quite a bit of reading in the past few years as I traveled the Appalachians. Long days and nights alone, especially in the winter when there's no game about and the snow is too high to hunt, give a man like me plenty of time to peruse whatever literature I could get my hands on. And peruse I did. One fine day, my eyes fell across a book written by a certain Madeline Vinton Dahlgren in 1882 called South Mountain Magic. It was an account of the hauntings, monsters, and lost spirits that roamed the Appalachian wilderness. As I have told you, I always aspired to be a man of faith, and faith in a benevolent God demands faith, or at least belief, in its opposite. So I read Madame Dahlgren's account of the sinister and supernatural with what I hoped was an open mind and what I know was an open heart. But try as I might, I found it difficult to accept anything she had written as possible, let alone plausible. Even her account of the black dog of South Mountain, the Appalachian Wolfman, which was the particular evil our marshal, the snake stick man, had just referenced, seemed utterly ridiculous. And so I would have, at any other point in time than now, have answered Ketch in the affirmative. Yes, I would have said, the man must be insane. But not now. Not since I saw his staff turn into a living serpent. Not since I saw him bring a dead mountain rattler back to life. And besides, there was that pull in my gut, the grip on my heart that I felt whenever the snake stick man looked at me. An unexplained draw. Attraction, almost like hunger, overrode any intellectual objections I may have had. Catch, I said, 
My tone hushed as well. We saw him work a miracle yesterday, and I feel something when he is nearby. A draw I cannot escape. We were headed up a steep incline, fighting our way through the dense brush, and Catch saved his breath as he worked his way up the hillside, only remarking this to me. I feel it too, Kephart, but that does not mean he is sane. At last we three crested the hill and looked out at the valley below us. It was a weird and forbidding land, that valley. Vast labyrinths of rhododendron covered those profound and dismal depths, impenetrable, sunless in winter, dead but for the murky evergreen of shrubs and spruces. The place was unearthly in its dreariness and desolation. The snake-stick man turned to my companion mountaineer and asked if it had a name. No, not as a whole, Ketch answered. Then let us call it Godforsaken, said the snake-stick man. I think God does not often tread upon this land. Ketch nodded in agreement. A good name, he mused. It is fitting. The snake-stick man pointed at a small curl of smoke rising from the valley floor below. That's where we're headed, he said. If my sources are correct, the man they call the sheriff of this area lives down there in yonder cabin. Warren? I choked. Old man Warren is a sheriff here? The snake-stick man nodded, that strange smile just beginning to cross his lips. But old Warren is one of the biggest moonshiners this side of hell, I gasped. How could he be sheriff? The snake-stick man could contain his smile no longer, and he almost laughed as he grinned at me. This is a democracy, Kephart, and I suppose the people voted for him. What do we need Sheriff Warren for? Ketch growled. Don't you have warrants for the men we're after? The snake-stick man nodded, reached inside his black coat, and produced three federal warrants. These are good and legal, but most of the men in this area cannot read, as you well know. But they are good with a rifle, and even better to creep up on you in the dark, a skin and knife in their hand. And while they cannot read the words a clerk wrote in some federal court miles away from a place they will never be in all their living days, they may be able to recognize the signature of their good friend and local lawman, Billy Warren. And that signature may be all that stands between us and a shallow grave out here amongst the mountain laurel. Suddenly I realized what the snake-stick man was up to, and I shook my head, unable to believe I hadn't realized it before. And old Warren is as crooked as they come, so he'll be sure to know where we can find Buck Ruff and his fellow fugitives. Exactly, said the snake-stick man as we continued our descent into the valley toward old man Warren's cabin. The catch remained unconvinced of our plan. What if Warren don't want to talk, he asked. You let me worry about that, was the only answer the snake-stick man would give. I'll spare you the details of our approach to Sheriff Warren's cabin other than to say we passed not one, not two, but three moonshine stills on the way toward this so-called lawman's abode. We tripped several alarms as we walked past the moonshine stills toward the cabin, the first being bells hung on tree limbs, the second being string run across a deer pat that caused cans suspended in the brush to clink together, and the third being a huge bloodhound of rank and evil temper that hallooed at us from Warren's front porch as Warren himself crept up behind us, muzzle-loading rifle to his shoulder and two ancient cap and ball revolvers jammed into his waistband. When old man Warren realized we were not rival moonshiners come to dynamite his operation, but rather a group of fellow lawmen, 
he very near shat himself with surprise and not a little fear. I will tell you this that I have learned from my years in the Appalachians, living among its people. When strangers come to a mountain home and have told who and what they are, then, if the owner lacks their appearance, even a little bit, he will politely invite them in to rest. Always. Sheriff Warren did not invite us in. Instead, he quickly agreed to sign anything the snake-stick man put before him. Catch remarked that the man was so rattled at the sight of a true, honest-to-God U.S. Marshal that he would have immediately signed a warrant for the arrest of his own mother just to get us the hell out of his valley. Even so, Warren had to allow the snake-stick man into his home because that was the only place for miles around that contained something actually resembling a table, and the snake-stick man needed a place to write out the new warrants for Warren to sign. As Ketch and I waited outside for the snake-stick man to finish riding out warrants, old Sheriff Warren stood there, leaning against his woodshed, staring at Ketch. His gaze was constant and his features unchanging, except for the occasional pucker of lips when he spat tobacco juice. Ketch leaned toward me and spoke into my ear. What is his problem? My friend mused. You think Sheriff Warren has a problem? I responded. If not, Ketch grunted. He's about to. It was at this point that Catch stepped toward the grimacing, greasy-haired, poorly clothed Sheriff Warren and squared off. Looking at something, Warren, Catch growled. Warren did not respond. He just kept staring at Catch and occasionally spitting tobacco juice. As you can imagine, this irritated Catch and he balled his fists up at his side and squared his shoulders. Don't like having an Indian around, do you, Warren? Can't stand a Cherokee on your patch? Just as I was sure the two men were about to come to blows, Warren began to shake. His legs gave out from under him, and he sank to the ground, almost lifeless. Catch shot a look over his shoulder back at me, panic in his eyes, suddenly aware of the possible consequence should he be blamed for a white sheriff's injury. I didn't touch him, Kephart, you saw. Didn't lay a finger on the son of a gun, he said. I know, Catch, I know. We approached the immobile Warren and crouched down beside him. Sweat poured off his face and dampened his dirty undershirt. Ketch grabbed a nearby jug of shine and tipped it up to Warren's lips. Here, this'll bring you around, Warren, he mumbled. Didn't mean to scare you quite this bad. Warren managed a few gulps and slowly seemed to come back to his senses. Forgive me, Ketch, he whispered. I only stared because of the dream. What dream, Ketch asked. Warren took a few more gulps of Mountain Dew and looked at me and Ketch, his eyes bloodshot, darting back and forth. You are afoot, Warren managed at last. Ketch nodded. Horse is dead, yeah? Warren asked. Ketch nodded once more, and Warren covered his eyes with a shaking palm. Something come in the night and killed mine as well. Took their guts from their bellies and dragged it from here to yon. I heard it when it came to my place. A great howl like I ain't never heard in all my days. We heard a howl too, Ketch offered. Must be a wolf or two still living in these hills. Just then, Sheriff Warren grabbed Ketch by the collar, a desperate fear dancing in his eyes. No, he breathed. Weren't no wolf, nor stray hound, neither. I saw it. Saw it with my own eyes and then in my dreams, son. Saw what? Let go of me, Ketch growled. You're not making any sense. 
Ketch lifted the bottle of shine up and nodded toward the apoplectic Warren. Too much of this rot gut, he spat. Warren let go of Ketch's collar and leaned back against the wall of the log cabin. Maybe, he sighed, maybe I do drink too much of that there shine, but this is the God's honest truth. Last night I saw a man with hair all about his body. Maybe it was a man with hair. Or more like it were a beast. A wolf that walked on two legs and wore a man's clothes. It roared and howled. You heard it. I know you did. Last night while you waited out the storm. I know you heard it calling out into the darkness. And then I saw it kill my livestock. All of them. Come now, Ketch. You're from here and your family too back a thousand years. You must know about the black dog of South Mountain. Ketch shook his head and stood up. Those old legends don't bother me, Warren. I've seen enough of this world to know the old tales you superstitious hillbillies whisper in the dark are of no truth and little interest to me. But dear friends, those old tales were of the utmost interest to me. So I offered Sheriff Warren another drink and asked him, the dream, Warren, what happened in the dream? Warren leaned forward and spoke quietly to me and Ketch. After I saw my livestock laid low by whatever evil that wolfman be, the beast turned toward me and walked to my door, its hair quivering like a rabid dog, overall soaked in bile and offal, his blood-red teeth bared in a hell-bound snarl. I cried out into the darkness for God to save me, but he ain't answered my call. He ain't come and done shit. Instead, the beast lifted me by my collar and threw me against yon door jam. Knocked me clean out. And as I lay there on the ground, I dreamed. I dreamed the wolfman was about to take me to pieces like he'd done to my stock when... When... At this point, Sheriff Warren lost the thread for a moment and went to sucking on that moonshine jug like it was full of water and he was dying of thirst. When he finally came up for air, he pointed a catch with a quivering finger and spoke again. Your marshal. Yon snake stick man appeared and spoke to the beast in a strange tongue. I think he was asking it to come along with him. But the beast roared again and ran off into the brush. So you had a dream about the marshal, so what? Ketch mused. I had to agree. It seemed quite plausible that our friend Warren had simply drank too much, fallen asleep, and had a strange dream as the storm scared his livestock off. No. Warren shook his head. Never seen that snake stick man in my life. How could I know his face if I'd never seen him before? He'd come to me in my dreams. Ketch shrugged, still unconvinced. Then the wind shifted and the stench of death wafted from deep in the woods. Ketch and I caught wind of it at the same time and exchanged looks. Warren smelled it too. Go look in the trees, boys. You'll see what's happened to my stock. As Ketch and I turned to go, Warren spoke again to Ketch. There's something else, Ketch, he whispered. Something else the snake stick man told me in my dream. What? Ketch grunted. Your daughter, Ketch. The little one your wife lost in childbirth. In my dream, the snake stick man told me he could do for her what he'd done for the mountain rattler. Ketch lunged at Warren, murder in his eyes. I had to hold him back with all the strength I possessed, so great was Ketch's rage at these words. But I understood his anger and his confusion. There were only three of us that knew of his wife's stillbirth. Her, Ketch, and I were the only ones who were there when it happened. 
and we never spoke of it to anyone. I kept silent out of respect for catching his wife's feelings, and they kept silent out of grief. Liar, liar, was all Ketch could manage to say as I dragged him away from Warren. Am I? Warren replied. Look in yonder wood and see if I lie about my horse and cow. Ketch and I tried in vain to hold our breath as we stared at the dead animal strewn about the trees. It had taken us a few minutes to walk from Warren's cabin in the clearing to the edge of the tree line from whence the stench of death emanated, and we were winded. Our exertion made the putrid miasma all the more disturbing and harder to avoid. Neither of us were sure what to believe, but one thing was true. Warren's livestock had been slaughtered in the same vicious manner as ours had been. Ketch and I argued there by the dead animals. I was becoming more and more convinced that this wolf man was real and that our snake stick man was no ordinary marshal. On that point we agreed, but not for the same reason. Ketch was still steadfast in his complete denial of any sort of supernatural explanation for the dead animals, the strange night howling, and for Warren's dreams. But he did think the snake stick man was some sort of trickster or confidence man or perhaps a gypsy conjurer out to frighten simple hillbillies into giving him money. I was telling Catch that the snake-stick man could not be a grifter since he had so far asked no one for any money, and that it was Catch and I, not the marshal, who stood to gain the most financially from this adventure when we heard it. We raced back to Warren's cabin and found poor old Sheriff Warren laying dead on the ground, the snake-stick man standing over him, a smoking Luger pistol in his hand. What happened? Ketch yelled. The snake stick man shook his head. Our friend here, the crooked Sheriff Warren, was even more corrupt than we had feared, it seems. The snake stick man pointed at the deceased Warren's hand. A cap and ball revolver was clutched in his lifeless palm. The man signed the warrants as I requested, but when I asked him if he knew anything about the whereabouts of the man we searched for, he grew sullen and quiet. Then once my short, and friendly I may add, Interrogation ceased and I turned my back. I heard the rustle of gunmetal clearing leather. I turned around to find Warren drawing down on me. Then what? I demanded. I shot him, Kephart. As we stared at the body of old Sheriff Warren, the snakestick man reloaded the empty chamber in his Luger pistol and shook his head. Do not despair so, my companions. We will still have a story for your publisher, Kephart, and your $500 in bail money catch. Before he died, the corrupt Sheriff Warren did say one thing that may help us in our search for the elusive Buck Ruff. Word is the man had been hiding out up at Bearedale's camp, been cutting lumber with that crew and laying low. So it's off to the Bearedale's logging camp for us three. And with that, the snakestick man hoisted his saddlebags over his shoulder, took a hold of his serpentine walking staff, and began hiking west. I moved to follow, too rattled to do anything else. But Catch hesitated. What if we don't go with you, Marshal? Catch asked, a steely undertone to his voice. The snake stick man smiled that terrible smile of his and looked at us. Then I'd have to shoot you as well, for dereliction of duty, he said. But I don't think I'll have to do that, will I? I know about you, Catch. A deserter you are not. Catch met the snake stick man's gaze with a strength I know I do not possess. Finally, the snake-stick man let his eyes drop. He stared at the ground and looked almost sheepish. 
Warren told you about his dream, did he? Ketch nodded. Me too, the snake stick man breathed. I did not know about your daughter, and I'm sorry that poor excuse for a lawman said such a horrible thing to you. Dredged up those terrible memories, especially when you're tired and cold and hungry from this, our difficult sojourn, into these foreboding hills. Ketch and I looked at the snake stick man as he stood there on the mountainside, rod in hand, black duster coat moving with the cold winter wind, a shadow over his face cast by the brim of his black felt hat. It was odd. For such an imposing man, he looked almost small in that moment. Listen, boys, he said, a kind of resignation in his voice. I cannot do this alone. Buck is a dangerous man, and if my sources are to be believed, these hills are swarming with dangerous men just like him. It was true. The Sugar Lands were notorious for the kind of ruffian that lived there. It was considered by some to be less of a geographical area and more of an outlaw hideaway. The snake stick man was correct. We were in danger out here. I need your help, Catch, said the snake stick man, and yours, Kephart. This man we seek is a criminal, and I plan to bring him to justice. Will you walk with me? Catch said nothing. Only picked up his saddlebags and started heading west into the low winter sun. I followed after him and the snake stick man smiled. It was a smile of relief. Good, he said, and thank you. I'd hate to be alone in these hills. I am truly grateful for your help. Once we arrive at Beardell's camp, we may relax. I have heard of this place and am told we may expect a friendly reception. Beardell himself is a former U.S. Marshal and will likely help us in any way he can. We three walked together through the wilderness for quite a while, climbing the mountainside together without any more discussion. After what must have been at least two hours of silence, Ketch cleared his throat. Didn't take you for the type to scare, Ketch said, half to himself and half out loud. The snake stick man did not immediately respond. We walked a moment longer before the snake stick man let out a long breath and spoke. Well, he said, I don't generally scare, but I do generally plan on a fair fight. And what we're up against takes three to make fair. Four would be better, but you two are all I have now that Warren is dead. Four men to hunt Buck Ruff? You think each of us a quarter tough as one man? Catch asked, a bit bemused. The snake stick man's expression turned dark, and he spoke quietly as he answered. There are forces at work here. Truths that I have kept from you men, he said, his eyes scanning the mountainside, piercing the dark shadow of the woods. And I think now may be the time to tell you. I have held off for fear of driving you away and for the fear that you may think me unhinged, but it was a mistake to withhold what I tell you now. The snake stick man paused and ran his fingers over the head of his walking stick. It gives me no pleasure to say this, but say it I must. You have seen and heard strange things since you began your travels with me, he breathed, and I believe you will see and hear even more. This, what I am about to say to you, is the latest, but not the last. And if you think me a liar who is unacquainted with any true supernatural action, I ask you to remember what I did for the mountain rattler before your very eyes. The snake stick man took another deep breath before continuing. Buck Ruff and this howling monster that the recently deceased Sheriff Warren calls the Wolfman of Appalachia. 
it may be the case that they are one and the same. And while you think we are hunting him, hunting it, truly I tell you this, I think Buck has begun to hunt us. The sounds of Baradell's logging camp were just becoming audible through the trees as Ketch and I exchanged looks of true concern. But we had not time to express what was on our troubled minds, because right as I opened my mouth to speak we crested a small rise and were met with the sights and sounds of at least a dozen lumberjacks screaming at us. Timber! They yelled. I looked up and saw a giant oak falling right on top of us. Chapter 4. Shootout at Baradale's Camp We had been fortunate. Catch's experience in war had sharpened his reflexes to a razor's edge, and he had grabbed both me and the snake-stick man and hurled all three of us just out of harm's way. The tree had crashed onto the ground with startling force that shook the earth beneath me. As soon as the crunching and snapping of leaves and branches ceased, we could hear the dinner bell ringing up by the tent city these lumberjacks were living in. Without the slightest concern about our welfare or even a cursory glance in our direction to see if we were still alive, the mob of them quit the work they were about, dropped their axes and mauls, and headed straight for the supper table. One of them did turn and holler over his shoulder, Come you three up for chow if in your care to eat. This was the famous Appalachian Mountain hospitality I had expected, but not received from Warren. Apparently, mountain people were more concerned with a stranger's stomach than they were with his body or life as a whole. The snake-stick man stood up, brushed himself off, and headed for the camp without saying anything except, let's find the one who commands these men. Perhaps he knows which of them is Buck Ruff. I rolled myself over and sat up. How do you like that catch, I mused. Not even so much as a thank you for saving his life. He is, I believe, what they call a cool customer. But I got no answer from Ketch. My breath caught in my throat and I turned to look. Catch? Catch! Much to my relief, I saw my friend standing up alive and not laying down dead as I had feared from his silence. Yet, he looked strange. His hands were shaking and he seemed unable to catch his breath. He was staring at the scars on his palms that he earned across the sea in the trenches of no man's land and mumbling under his breath. I went to him and touched his shoulder. He pulled away from me as if my palm were a red-hot iron. Don't, he gasped. I stood with him while he fought to calm himself. It took a great while, but eventually his breath returned to normal and his hands stopped their quivering. I did not understand at the time, but came to learn later on that my dear friend suffered from an ailment common to men who returned alive from that great cataclysm of violence across the sea. Sometimes... When there is a loud sound or a moment of intense danger, their mind will transport them back to the trenches, and it is as if they had never left. The mortal danger of the falling tree, loud yells of the lumbermen, and Catch's quick action that saved my life must have given his nervous system quite a shock. He spoke through clenched teeth as he rolled himself a cigarette. My wife, he gasped. My son. They are safe, I assured him, and you are too. Ketch took a long drag off his smoke, shook his head, and looked at his disfigured hands again. Never, he whispered. Never. 
I stood there watching Ketch smoke. He inhaled each time with a quiet, desperate hope, but seemed always to exhale in a cloud of despair. I thought of what must be lurking in his mind at all hours, waiting to strike out from the past and take the peace of his present away from him. Come, I said. We are with friends now. A good meal amongst good men awaits us. No danger here. We can relax. These lumbermen will be our allies. They are employed by a former marshal. There is but one amongst them who may mean us harm, and he is the man we seek. When they learn this fact, he will for sure be given up to us. Once Catch recovered, he stomped out the butt of his cigarette, and we walked toward the chow line to see what news our strange marshal had uncovered about Buck's whereabouts. Do not fret, my friend, I said to Catch as we walked. I believe that oak tree was the last shock of the day. Ketch tried to smile. I hope so, he said. Wouldn't that be something? I survived German bombs, bullets, and bayonets only to come home and have some hillbilly drop a tree on me. My wife would be too embarrassed to show her face at the funeral. With the help of Bairdell and his men, we'll have this buck rough caught before nightfall, I said. And you'll be home with your family by the end of the week. I believed it when I said it but I could not have been more wrong. As we approached the chow line at Bairdell's camp, we noticed that all the noise had stopped. No clanking of plates, smacking of lips, nor dull roar of conversation. We turned the corner, walked past a few tents, piles of log chains and axe heads, and saw the whole lot of lumbermen, 35 or more, sitting or standing in silence and staring at the snake-stick man. I had not noticed before, having only seen them from afar, but these woodsmen were, to a man, a rough and ready bunch. Hard features, scarred faces, armed to the teeth, and they looked enraged. I was at a loss as to what caused their apparent displeasure. Catch took a look around at the dirty bunch of angry lumberjacks and cocked his head to the side. Good lord, Snake Stick, what'd you say to these boys? There was no time to enjoy Catch's joke because before we had a moment to breathe, the snake-stick man pulled out his badge and warrants, and as he did so, every lumberjack in that camp pulled a gun. They are outlaws, the snake-stick man breathed in response to Catch's question. All of them? I croaked as I surveyed the mob of angry woodsmen. Yes, the snake-stick man affirmed. Every single one, apparently. I thought you believed the man who owned this camp was sympathetic to our cause, I said. I did, the snake-stick man replied, but I do not anymore. I noticed Catch was squinting and pointing at each lumberjack, one at a time, and counting. Well, he said, there's about thirty of them, three for each of us, ain't that right, Horace? No, I groaned, you did your math backwards. What do you mean backwards, Catch said, it's ten against one, I hissed. Ah, hell, Catch said as he cocked his rifle. I know that. Just trying to make you feel better. Planning on killing more than my share anyway. Maybe if you're lucky, Kephart, I'll leave you a few. You're funny, Catch, the snake stick man said. I did not know that about you. Yeah, well, I'm full of surprises, Catch grunted. He smiled a sad smile at me and managed to wink as one of the lumberjacks yelled, Let's shoot the Indian first. Ah, to hell with you, hillbilly, Catch spat back. We're gonna shoot the ugly ones first, and your mug is about at the top of that list. Okay, that's enough, the snake stick man growled at us under his breath before yelling to the outlaw lumberjacks. 
Drop your weapons in the name of the law. But the lumbermen did not obey him. They simply opened fire. Catch an eye dove to the right. Aiming for cover behind a pile of logging chains as a snake-stick man reached for his Luger pistols. But it was too late. A load of double-aught buckshot smashed into Catch's torso, tearing flesh and smashing bone. He hit the ground beside me and looked into my eyes as I fired back in a murderous rage, ready to slaughter the animals that had hurt my friend. Hang on, Catch, I hollered, but he said nothing. He just stared at me and bled. The gunfight raged on with me and the snake stick man giving as good as we got. Mercifully, the lumberjacks had terrible aim and we managed to retreat. I dragged the incapacitated Catch along the ground with one hand and shot back at our assailants with the other as the snake stick man let go with his two pistols like Zeus thrown bolts of lightning. Every roar of gunfire that erupted from the barrel of his guns hit its mark and sent one of our bearded assailants straight to hell. We stumbled down a hill and took cover behind a shaley outcrop, still firing at the enraged men chasing us through the woods. What happened? I demanded. Why are they shooting at us? Fugitives all, the snake stick man replied. I've been lied to. Bairdell is no U.S. Marshal. He is a crook, and every son of a bitch in this camp is running from the law. When I mentioned we were a posse, well, you can see the results for yourself. Catch looked down at his shattered midsection and closed his eyes. Oh God, he groaned. I'm dying. The snake stick man nodded between gunshots. Yes, Catch. You are. We kept firing, the snake stick man and I, but we faced an overwhelming force. The rocky outcropping was protecting us for now. However, the lumbermen were rapidly gaining ground. Keep pressure on your wound, Catch. I screamed between gunshots but I don't know that Catch could hear me anymore. Perhaps we should surrender, I said to the snake stick man. Why, he grunted as he stopped to reload, so they can kill us easier? Suddenly the gunshot ceased and the world became quiet save the ringing in my ears. What's happened, I asked. They're going to go to the high ground, take positions farther up the mountain, kill us from above, the snake stick man replied matter-of-factly. And it was at that moment when things were the most desperate. We surrounded by murderous mountain men, backed into a corner, and with my dear friend Catch's lifeblood soaking the dirt, that it appeared. Hearing that horrid howl and the screams of the lumberjacks, I peered over the top of the shaley outcrop and saw, with my own eyes, something I fear no one will believe. There it was, the black dog of South Mountain, the Wolfman of Appalachia. A giant candid, dressed in torn and stained overalls, standing on its hind legs and tearing the terrified lumberjacks limb from limb. The lumbermen turned their guns away from us and trained them on the wolfman, but to no avail. If anything, the more they shot, the angrier, stronger, the larger the black dog became. I dropped down behind the rocks and yelled to my companions, Look! there was no answer. I turned my head to see what kept Catch and the snake stick man from answering me, but I saw nothing. They had disappeared. I was alone in the Appalachian mountain woods threatened by a band of violent fugitives and the most terrifying monster you could ever imagine. And I will tell you, 
the monster was hungry. Next time on Moonshine Land. My God. I was being hunted. Reluctantly, I looked down and discovered that I too had been wounded in the firefight. I looked out the doorway and noticed a white circle of ashes surrounding the cabin. The granny woman's eyes followed my gaze out the doorway. Only until sunrise. Then it don't work no more, she rasped. <laughs>